exciting. We're going to start using those Bibles right away. We're going to read this morning from Exodus 3. Before we do that, I'm going to pray for God to open up our minds and our hearts and our eyes and ears to hear his word. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light for our path. So by your spirit, light our way as we read your word. Give us eyes to see all that you want us to see. Give us ears to hear all that you want us to hear. And give us hearts that might be opened and transformed at the reading of your holy word. In your son's precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Our Old Testament text this morning comes from Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15, page 59 in your pew Bible. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush has not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Thank you, Emily. Wow, can you imagine how Moses must have felt? He is 80 years old. He's herding his father-in-law's sheep. It's a pretty predictable job. And then all of a sudden he sees this burning bush and it starts to talk to him and and it's God. And so it says he, he put his face down in fear. He didn't want to look upon God. And then God calls Moses, of all people, to lead his people out of Israel, out of slavery, out of bondage. 
And of course, Moses was, was living in the wilderness because, well, previously he had been in Pharaoh's household and he had killed an Egyptian. He was afraid of being punished. Can you imagine how fearful Moses must have been, how anxious he must have been to, to receive this call at the age of 80? What is it that makes you anxious today? What are the things that tend to make you anxious? Maybe you're a student and, and, and classwork can make you anxious. You've got a test coming up. I, I remember when I was in college, you know, I had an academic scholarship and I had to maintain a certain GPA. And in some semesters, that was a little harder than, than others. And, and so I would become anxious around finals time knowing that I needed to make a certain score to, to keep that scholarship. What makes you anxious today? Maybe you're anxious about work because things aren't going well, your business isn't going well, or, or perhaps there's just a lot of, uh, lot of transition taking place at your place of work, or, and you're not exactly how things are going to shake out in the end. Or maybe you're looking for work, you're not exactly sure what job is on the horizon for you. What is it that makes you anxious? Maybe you're anxious about your children or your grandchildren. You're, you're anxious that they might get into the wrong crowd. They haven't yet found their niche yet. And, and you're just anxious that they might not find the, the right group of people. I mean, yes, it's true. We, we want our children to be salt and light, you know, in a dark and hurting world. But we also know what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 33. Paul says, bad company corrupts good character. And when we're young, oftentimes we can be influenced by the crowd. And so we're a little anxious about our children or our grandchildren. Maybe they won't make the right choices and, and they'll get with the wrong crowd and make some bad choices that could lead to some bad consequences. Maybe you're anxious about finances. Maybe you're, you're kind of living month to month and you're not exactly sure how, how things are going to meet at the end. Or you're not sure if you have enough retirement for when that's coming. Or you're not sure how you're going to pay for your kid's college. Finances can often seem uncertain, can't they? I know this last couple of years, we've had some unexpected expenses. We've had some emergency room payments and air conditioning repair and water heater repair and car repair. And it all seems to hit at once. You know, it, just, it doesn't ever, can't spread itself out. It just has to happen at once. You know, it's when it rains, it pours. And, and so I, I become anxious and, and it's really tight when we have to pay all these bills. And I start thinking about worst case scenarios and I'm trying to plan ahead so I'll be better prepared the next time. And as I'm thinking about worst case scenarios, I finally become even more and more anxious. Ever got like, like that? Reminds me of the story of the guy who lost his cable. We're going to show you his story real fast, how he got anxious. When your cable goes out, you get stressed. When you get stressed, you need to get away. When you need to get away, you go for something exotic. When you go for something exotic, you get bitten by something exotic. When you get bitten by something exotic, things swell up. When things swell up, you can't go home. And when you can't go home, you become a local fisherman they call Big Fatty Face. Don't become a local fisherman they call Big Fatty Face. Poor guy, right? He's just trying to get away from it all. Gets caught by an exotic bug. I mean, you just never know how one thing can lead to another, leads to another. It can become anxious. What are we to do? What should we do when we become anxious amidst the stress and the storms of this life? To find out what we're to do when we become anxious. Open your Bibles the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 14. As we continue our journey through the story, the grand narrative of Scripture, once again we're looking at the story of Jesus, the life of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, 14, Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. It may be found on page 1042 of your Red Pew Bible. But before I read God's Word, let's call upon His Spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired Matthew to put pen to paper so that we might have your written word today. 
Oh God, we thank you, Lord, for your amazing love. And we pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would guide us as we read your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 22, listen to the word of the Lord. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he, Jesus, had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the, on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got to the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, you know that we talked about how Jesus often went away to, to be alone and to pray with his heavenly Father. Solitude and prayer were some of the principal ways that Jesus renewed and refreshed himself. And our church's mission statement is to discover and live the way of Christ in the expansive grace of God. That's what our church's mission statement is. And as we discover the way of Christ, we can see that solitude and prayer is a big part of the way of Christ. To, to be like Christ, to live like Christ, is to spend time alone with our Heavenly Father in prayer. Now, to put verse 23 in its proper biblical context, Jesus originally tries to get away to pray after he learns that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been executed in Matthew 14, verses 1 to 12. Yes, in Matthew 14, 1 to 12, we learn that King Herod has, has now beheaded John the Baptist. And in Matthew 14, verse 13, we read, Now when Jesus heard this, he heard that John the Baptist was beheaded. Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. He wanted to be by himself. He wanted to be with God the Father to, to pour out his heart to God. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Jesus wants to be alone to pray to our Heavenly Father, but the crowds hear it, and so, and so they come to Jesus. And, and Jesus has compassion on the crowds, and so he, he begins to teach them, and he begins to heal those who are sick. And, and as he's doing so, uh, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we need to send these people home. I mean, they are, it's getting close to dinner time, and, and there's no food out here, and, and they need to go home to eat. And Jesus said, you feed them. And I'm like, but Jesus... We only got five barley loaves and two fish, not a lot of food among so many. In fact, Matthew tells us that it was 5,000 men, not including women and children. Most biblical scholars say that if you add the women and children, it was probably close to 20,000 people that day. And all they've got are five barley loaves and two fish. 
Now, John is the one who makes the point, the Gospel of John chapter 6 makes the point that it's barley loaves. Matthew doesn't mention what kind of bread it is, he just says it's bread, but, but John says it's barley loaves, and, and for us it may not seem to minor detail, right? It could have been rye bread, it could have been barley bread or pumpernickel, who knows? But for John it's important, because as the Jews of the first century would read the story that it was barley bread, they would be reminded that there was the time when Elisha the prophet in 2 Kings chapter 4 had... 20 loaves of barley bread, and miraculously, he was able to feed 100 men with some left over. But in Matthew 14, Jesus only has five barley loaves and two fish, feeding 20,000 people. And he does it, and he has 12 basketfuls left over. Truly remarkable. The Gospel of John tells us that after Jesus feeds the the 5,000 or the 20,000, the amazing number of people, they want to make Jesus king by force, and Jesus has to get away. Well, in Matthew's telling of this account, he doesn't want his disciples to be a part of that conversation. So we read in our text, verse 22, immediately he made the disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Jesus didn't want his disciples to hear about this, to talk about making him king. It wasn't his time yet, and so he sends his disciples to go. And after Jesus dismisses the crowd, Jesus finally is able to get up to the mountain and pray, to be alone with his heavenly Father, pouring out his heart to God. Because Jesus knows in the midst of his grief, one of the most important things he can do is to spend time alone with his heavenly Father. Now today I know that there are several people in our congregation who have recently lost loved ones. And when we do lose a loved one, we, we do need to mourn in community. We need to grieve together. We see that throughout the scriptures. In John chapter 11, the group of Jews are gathering around Martha and Mary as their brother Lazarus has died. And, and of course, after Jesus is crucified, the disciples are together, mourning together. But we also need to spend time alone with God, pouring our heart out to God, mourning in, in dialogue with our Heavenly Father. 20th century German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who eventually died as a martyr for his faith under Nazi Germany's reign. In his wonderful book, Life Together, writes this. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. Let him who cannot be alone be aware of community. Let him who is not in community be aware of being alone. If all we are ever, if our time with God is only in fellowship, then we can find ourselves without depth to our personal relationship to God. But if we're only always alone with God, well, that can lead to vanity and that can lead to narcissism, feelings of self-infatuation. And so we need both. We need to be with the community and we need to be alone with God. And, And so is Jesus. That was his rhythm. He spent most of his time with his disciples, but he was constantly getting away to be alone with his heavenly father, to pour out his heart to God so that he might be renewed and refreshed. And if Jesus, the son of God, needed to spend time in solitude and prayer, how much more do we need to do the same? Now notice in verse 23 to 25 of our text this morning, Even though the disciples have faithfully followed Jesus' command to get in the boat and go to the other side, they're having a horrible time getting there. The storm is raging. This has not been easy for the disciples before we read. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Jesus is alone with the Heavenly Father. 
When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Just because we do what Jesus asks us to do, and we, we faithfully seek to follow him, he doesn't say it's going to be easy. He told his disciples to get in a boat and to cross the other side, but it wasn't an easy journey. No, there were still waves to overcome, and there was a storm, and, and so they were, they were desperate. In fact, Jesus tells us that following him doesn't mean life's going to be easy. It'll, it'll actually mean just the opposite. For in John 16, 33, he tells his disciples as he's about to be betrayed and arrested, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We know from history that 10 of the 12 original disciples all died as martyrs for their faith in Christ. They all died confessing that Jesus Christ alone is Lord, that he had risen and in fact had risen from the dead. Yes, following Jesus, what didn't mean life was going to be easy for the disciples. Life's not going to be easy for anyone. The fact is we live in a fallen and broken world where storms are going to come whether you follow Jesus or not. But if you're following Jesus, we can see in our text this morning that Jesus will make a way to you to be with you in the midst of the storm. For we read, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking, walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They've been rowing all night, desperate, trying to just do what Jesus told them to do. And, And the storm keeps coming and the waves keep surging. And then eventually they see Jesus. He comes to them. In the midst of the storm, he doesn't keep them from the storm. No, he comes to be with them in the storm, walking on water. Of course, they don't recognize him because they had no plans to think that there was no expectation that Jesus was going to walk on water. I mean, who's ever heard of anyone walking on water before, right? Which reminds me of the old story. There was um, a Baptist minister, a Presbyterian pastor, and a Roman Catholic priest, and they all decided to go fishing together, and they got in a little rowboat in the middle of a pond, and... About midway, uh, mid-afternoon, the uh, Baptist minister gets up and he decides that he's going to go to the restroom. There's a restroom on the, on the shore there. And so he gets up and he walks on the water. Unbelievable. And then he goes to the restroom, comes back and sits down back down on the boat. The Roman Catholic priest is freaking out. He can't believe he just saw this. The Presbyterian minister acts like it's no big deal. Then a few minutes later, the Presbyterian minister decides he's thirsty. And so he, he turns to the other guy and says, hey, I'm going to go get something to drink. We left the cooler on the shore. Would you guys like anything? And of course, the Baptist said, no, I don't drink. And the Catholic priest said, oh, I'd love to have something. And so the Presbyterian minister gets up and he walks across the water and gets some two beverages and comes back to the boat. And, and the Catholic priest can't believe this. And he's thinking to himself, he says, you know, I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm just as holy. I'm just as holy as those two Protestants. If they can walk on water, I can walk on water. And so the priest proudly says, well, I'm going to go to the restroom as well. So he gets up and takes his first step and splash right into the water. And the Presbyterian minister looks at the Baptist and said, I guess we should have told them where the rocks are, right? (laughs) Who's ever heard of anyone walking on water, right? I mean, that's crazy. It's truly remarkable. I'm sure it was amazing when when Jesus was able to feed 20,000 people with just five barley loaves and two fish, but they had seen Elisha feed 100 men with 20 bread. I mean, that was a miracle that had kind of been done before, but, but in a much grander scale, that's for sure. In fact, according to Jesus, if you, if, uh, Matthew, if you read the, the Gospels up to this point, you'll see that Matthew, uh, Jesus has done several miracles. He's actually raised a girl from the dead. But even Elijah and Elisha's the prophets, they, they did the same thing. Elijah, if you'll remember from the Old Testament, uh, raised a widow's son from the dead. Elisha raised the Shunammite's son from the dead. Elisha healed the leper uh, Naaman from leprosy. He was able to help heal him. And Jesus had healed some lepers too. So, 
So they had seen Jesus do some remarkable things, but Elisha and Elisha had done some similar things. It was, but no one had ever seen anyone walk on water before, right? I mean, they just thought, surely this must be a ghost. This couldn't possibly be Jesus. But then notice what Jesus says in verse 27. Immediately, he says, take heart, it is I. Now, in our English translation, sometimes we can miss a a nuance of the language here. In the Greek that Matthew was originally written in, it says, ego a me, or I am. And that's significant because just as Emily read a moment ago, when Moses asks God, who shall I send sent me? God says, I am. I am the great I am. As you read in Exodus chapter 3, 14 to 15, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of, uh, of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, I am. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Jesus in the Greek says, I am. Don't worry, I'm here. I am. John, in his gospel, makes a big point about this I am statement. Jesus has a lot of I am statements. He says, I'm the good shepherd and and I'm the light of the world. And he he says that, you know, I'm the bread of life. And in John chapter eight, verse 59, Jesus says, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is God incarnate. He's the great I am who shows us that he has the power of God to not only walk on water but also to calm the storms. Now notice in our text that when Jesus identifies himself, Peter in a moment of of great faith says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. You know, when we first come to faith in Jesus, we're we're all excited about our faith and and we're willing to take big steps of faith. Maybe we go on a mission trip or maybe we get involved in in some type of service project. We're like, yeah, Lord, I'm there, I wanna do it. But then it gets tough or maybe we just get a little stale and and, and like the seed that's planted in the rocky soil, we can sprout up quickly, but if we don't have roots, it won't last. Well, Peter has great faith, and so he's excited, and he begins to walk on the water. But notice that as Peter begins to walk on the water, he, he takes his eyes off Jesus for just a little bit, and he begins to notice the wind around him. And he becomes anxious. As he takes his eyes off Jesus, he becomes worried and, and concerned about the wind and the storm and the waves like the seed that is planted among the the weeds that begins to be choked out by the cares and the worries of this world. Peter becomes anxious, and so he begins to sink. Back to my original question. What should we do when we become anxious amidst the stress and the storms of this life? Notice that Peter is doing fine as long as he's focused on Jesus. One of the great ancient practices of the earliest church is a thing called centering prayer. When we come in the midst of anxious times, when we find ourselves surrounded by an anxious storm of life, we need to center our hearts on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The way centering prayer works is we simply close our eyes. You can do it with me. We close our eyes. We breathe through our nose. As we breathe out, we say, Jesus. Let's try that together. Jesus. Jesus. 
And as we do this time and time again, then we begin to center our hearts and minds on Jesus, the Savior of the world, who conquered sin and death on our behalf in his resurrection, who proved to be more powerful than sin and death itself, who has the power to walk on water and to calm storms, no matter what storm we might be in in the midst of our lives today. Yes, we need to spend time alone with God, just as Jesus did. We need to center our hearts and minds on Jesus, our Savior. After all, that is why Jesus came. He came to this earth to save us, to let us know just how much God loves us. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Jesus came to this earth to bring a message. That message is, I'm with you and I love you because I love you. I'm with you. God is telling us through Jesus, I am with you and I love you because I love you. Let's say that together. I'm with you and I love you because I love you. Yes, in Jesus Christ, God has demonstrated the full extent of his love that while we were sinners, broken people, unfaithful, he paid the price for our sins with his death on a cross. And on the third day, he rose again, conquering sin and death on our behalf. He's come to this earth to to save us, to offer us salvation, to offer us a new life if we'll simply come to him. Notice that the disciples, after they see Jesus walking on water and delivering Peter, then Jesus gets in the boat and the storm is calmed once again and they say, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has calmed a storm. If you actually go to Matthew chapter 8, you'll see that Jesus calms a storm in that chapter. Jesus is in the boat. He's fallen asleep. His disciples are rowing. The storm is coming. They wake him up and they say, Jesus, save us, Lord. And immediately, Jesus is able to calm the storm. And the disciples say to themselves, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? What kind of man is able to calm the winds and the sea? Well, the disciples have come a long way from Matthew 8 to Matthew 14. They've seen Jesus heal lepers and, 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 and raise the dead. They've seen him do some remarkable things. And now they've seen him walk on water and he calms the storm yet again. And so with a great profession of, of strong faith, they say, yes, truly you are the Son of God. You know, I don't know everyone's story here this morning. Perhaps you're like the disciples and you find yourself in the midst of an anxious storm. Perhaps school isn't going well and maybe you haven't found the right niche of friends yet. You feel very alone or maybe coursework is hard. Maybe work isn't going well and your career seems uncertain. Maybe you're looking for work. You're wondering what job might be next. Maybe finances are tight and you're not exactly sure how ends are going to meet at the end of the month. Maybe your marriage isn't going so well. Whatever your circumstances, the truth is that we live in a fallen and and broken world. And storms are going to come for all of us, whether we follow Jesus or not. Storms are going to come, but if we'll follow Jesus, if we'll we'll turn our hearts and minds toward Jesus, then as we read in our text this morning, immediately he will reach out his hand and take hold of us. The next time we become anxious and worried and concerned about the problems and the storms of this life, and we take some time to do some centering prayer, to be alone with our Heavenly Father, to say the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name. And then we cry out as Peter did, Lord, save me. And then we will experience his loving presence. As Jesus came to let us know that he is with us and he loves us because he loves us. Thanks be to God for his amazing love. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you so much that you're a God who is not far from us, but you're a God who is very much with us, and we see that in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for you came to this earth and became a man and walked among us and taught us and healed us and ultimately died for us. And your power was made known and that you were able to walk on water and you were able to calm the storms. And when we cry out to you as Peter did and as the disciples did, we know that you were there holding us no matter the storm, holding our hand, carrying us through the storm so that we might get to the other side. Oh God, when we find ourselves in anxious times, may we do what Jesus did. May we take some time to be alone with you. May we call and center our hearts and minds on the name of Jesus through centering prayer. And may we call out to you, knowing that you will be there to respond to our cries for help. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.